We know this, but we really don't want to accept it to be true because, like, holding on to anger and bitterness, like, it feels good. It feels empowering. Like, I could use some angerness and bitterness right now to kind of, like, mo- to energize me this morning. But we like, uh, we like anger, we like bitterness because it kind of drives us. Um, musicians will often kind of funnel or channel their heartbreak or disappointment, like, into their music, like their anger. And forgive me for going, you know, for banging on for any Taylor Swift fans out there, but I was thinking about Taylor Swift, like, like, how much of her songs are, like, breakup songs, right? Like, I was, some Reddit thread I was finding, uh, like, I think, like, a quarter, no, what is it, 76% of her songs are about love and relationships, and she's well known for, like, the breakup song, right, at least in her early work. So apologies to any, what is it, Swift, what is it? Swifties, Swifties out here. Um, <laughs> I was also thinking about, like, I'm a big sports fan, and athletes will talk about, like, having a chip on their shoulder to kind of motivate them. So if they get, like, passed over in, in a draft or they get cut by a team or, or they have a run-in with a coach, they'll talk about, like, having a chip on their shoulder. So when they enter the game or the season or whatever, like, they use that kind of that bitterness to kind of motivate them, uh, to kind of drive them. And uh, apparently... Now, I don't know, this, this is what I found on the internet, so it may or may not be true, but apparently, like, the saying, having a chip on your shoulder, goes back, I guess, 100 years ago or so. So if, if two guys, and let's be real, it's probably guys, right? Uh, two guys were having a disagreement, like, at a bar or something, like, one guy would be like, like, hey, you know, you, you, if you really feel that way, like, knock this chip off my shoulder, supposedly. So, as you can imagine, as you can imagine, if you know, if, if, the, if the other guy was like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to knock that chip off your shoulder. And like, you know, it was, it was on, obviously. So having a chip on your shoulder meant like, you know, <laughs> you were ready to carry it out. You had some anger and bitterness. Um, so one thing for sure, though, whether we want to admit or not, like holding a grudge can be problematic. Whether we're like in a, in a, in a bar ready to like throw it out, duke it out with a, another person in the bar, whether, you know, we're an athlete... And, and whether we think it or not, like, I think at some point, like, using, mo- using bitterness and anger to kind of motivate us can have diminishing returns. And at least, you know, that's what I'm kind of going to talk about today. So today we're starting a new series called Fallen Heroes, and we're talking about overcoming our nemesis to discover our secret identity. And I got I to gotta give credit here. Uh, she's not here today, but Katrina, I got to give credit to Katrina. Ugh, struggling. Katrina, for this message series, this was her idea. She can help me flesh through some ideas and some themes to talk about. She'll be speaking, I think, the 22nd about uh, Jessica Jones. Jessica Jones and working through trauma. So I think that'll be a great one to hear. But this week, if you saw my email, and hopefully at least some of you read the emails that go out weekly, like, right, like yes, we all read the emails, right? Yes. Just humor me here. We all read the emails. Thank you. Make me feel like my worth my work is worth something. <laughs> so um, in the email, it said I was going to be talking about Iron Man, and I have to own this because I kind of screwed things up. Uh, Ethan sends out the emails on like, he's, he works them on Tuesdays, schedules them to go out on Wednesdays, and Wednesdays is the day I write my sermons. And Wednesday, I'm kind of, or I think it was Tuesday night, something I was thinking about, I'm just like, man, I, I don't like Iron Man. I'm just not into Tony Stark, whatever. And I was just like, my favorite, I'm not a huge superheroes person, but my favorite superhero is Spider-Man. And I'm talking about the, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, because that's the only true Spider-Man. I'm sorry, I said it. It is, so you're going to have to deal with it. So 
the only true Spider-Man is Fire Spider-Man. And those are my favorite movies. And it's probably because I still, still, still have a crush on Kirsten Dunst as MJ. So I'll own that. Um, so for those of you who are not Spider-Man fans or don't remember the movie, because this was back, gosh, too long ago, um, Tobey Maguire, if you know him, stars as Peter Parker, this scrawny, nerdy kid who gets bitten by this radioactive spider and develops these superhuman uh, spider-like skills, right? And Kirsten Dunst plays Mary Jane, or MJ, his kind of crush and develops into his love interest throughout the trilogy. And uh, in the first Spider-Man movie, uh, Peter's beloved Uncle Ben gets tragically killed, and this whole kind of storyline of Peter kind of mourning and dealing with the, the pain and grief about the loss of his Uncle Ben kind of plays through the next two movies. So I'm going to go, I'm, we're actually going to show a clip here from, from Spider-Man 3, but I want to kind of set it up first, uh, if, you're, if you don't remember the movie that well. So uh, what happens before this clip is that MJ, the Kirsten Dunst's character, she gets this leading role on Broadway, and after one show, she gets fired from it. So she's kind of bummed out about that, obviously. And she goes to see Peter. The, the city is throwing this big celebration for Spider-Man. You know, all hail Spider-Man. He's great. He's our hero. And Spider-Man does this thing. If you remember the first movie, he, he what, repels, I guess we'd say, hangs down upside down. And he gets the, the mayor's daughter, is it? I don't remember the police. Somebody's daughter to kiss him. And if, if you're... If you're not a Spider-Man fan, like that was uh, MJ's and Spider-Man's like special kiss. So MJ sees that and she's kind of upset. So the next the next night or something like that, like they meet at the special restaurant and Peter's like he's gonna propose, but MJ's upset about this kiss for this other girl. Uh, she's upset that like Peter's been kind of own in his own world and not paying attention to her. So it doesn't go as planned and he doesn't get a chance to propose. And so the next day. Um, Peter and his, his Aunt May, it's Aunt May, right? I think that's what it is. They get a call from the police chief, and the police chief tells them who uh, the Uncle Ben's true killer was, and it wasn't who Peter had initially suspected. So Peter's understandably upset by this, and he kind of storms off uh, in a gloomy to his apartment, and MJ hears about this and comes over and says, hey, you know, your, your aunt called me. Uh, I, I don't care about the fight, but can I be a help to you? And Peter, like a, you know, like a, what you expect from this, you know, stupid dude, right? Uh, he's just like, no, I want to be alone in my misery and my grief, right? So she's like, whatever, fine. And she says something to them, though, on the way out that I thought was interesting. Uh, she says to him, I don't want you to do something stupid, something you'll regret. Everyone needs help, she says, even Spider-Man. So let's go ahead and show this, this clip right here uh, from the movie.
This is something else. What do you think? I've never seen anything like it. I'm a physicist, not a biologist, but can we look at it in the morning and run some tests? Can we do that now? Seems to like you. Don't let any of that get on you. Why not? It has the characteristics of a symbiote which needs to bond to a host to survive. And sometimes these things in nature, when they bind, they can be hard to unbind. So I, I really like that clip because, like, Peter, that what this symbiote, this kind of uh, alien creature thing, organism, it kind of takes him over, and it's kind of meant to, to represent his, his grudge, his anger, his bitterness kind of overtaking him. And he, like, you know, he wakes up somewhere he didn't expect, where he kind of comes to himself somewhere, and he's like, what's going on? Where am I? What is this? And he, he's like, wow, this feels good. Like, and it, I think it's so emblematic of, like, of a grudge, of anger, of bitterness. Like, at the beginning, like, it feels good. It feels powering. It feels like a thrill. It feels like a rush. And he takes off. He's like, wow, this is something else. He takes off and looks at it. And, you know, today we're talking about, we're talking about bitterness, uh, anger, holding grudge, whatever you want to call it. I think it's basically the same thing. I'll, I'll refer to it primarily as bitterness for today's purposes. But I think there's something in that clip also that I find intriguing that, you know, bitterness can take us places we didn't want to go. It can make us do the things we didn't necessarily want to do. And it can cost us relationships that we once valued. And again, like this clip shows, once we kind of allow ourselves to be taken over by bitterness, it's hard to shake off. Like the professor says in the movie clip there, once it binds itself to us, it's hard to unbind. So this whole story of, of Peter Parker and Spider-Man and grudge kind of reminds me of uh, a story in the Old Testament in, uh, about King Saul. Now, I don't know how, how many of you are like experts in biblical history, <laughs> but the gist is a long time ago, we'll say, uh, the nation of Israel was kind of forming as a people group, and they're like, we need a king. They didn't have a king. They didn't have any kind of real government at that point. And the people were like, hey, we need a king. All the, all the countries around us are having a king, so we need a king. So, uh, you know, they're like, okay, let's, they're, some of their leaders are like, okay, well, let's get a king. So what do they do? They do like the obvious thing that we do is they find like the biggest, tallest, buffest guy. And they're like, bam, you are our king. And his name was King Saul. So the thing about King Saul was he was really like, he was really like, he looked the part of a king. Like he looked, he was taller than everybody else. He was probably good, he, you know, handsomer than everyone else. Is that a word, handsomer? Better looking than everyone else. He was probably stronger than everybody else. And he looked the part of someone like, we want this guy, we want this guy like in our authority as our king. So he's kind of based on his appearance. 
And on the other hand, uh, he wasn't necessarily uh, kingly on his own character or moral values. So that's contrasted in, in the Bible to this guy named David. If you've heard the name David, you probably heard it with David and Goliath, right? Uh, the story of David defeating the giant. And um, David was kind of the contrast of King Saul. Uh, the Bible says that he was kind of young and scrawny and not really that, like, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Like, not really that appealing of a person visually. But the Bible says that, that you know, God looks on the inside, not on the outside appearance. So they were kind of these two contrasting characters. Saul having this great appearance, but questionable character and moral values. And David not having a great appearance, but having good, strong character and values. So we're going to read today um, from 1 Samuel, and I'll have it here on the screen. You can follow along with me if you'd like to. So this comes from 1 Samuel chapter 18, and it says, when David returned from killing the Philistine, this is the Philistine he's talking about as Goliath, the, woman, the women came out of all the towns of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women, this is funny, they sang to one another as they made merry, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And as we can imagine, Saul was upset about this. And he said, you know, what they're saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So, you know, Saul was obviously recognizing like, hey, the seeds of like, uh, rebellion are here. Like, if they're promoting David as being so much better than me, like, it's not long before they decide to promote him as king. And Saul's like, I want to stay king. So Saul I David. He was skeptical of David from that day on. And the next day, an evil spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house. And while David was, uh, while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day, Saul had a spear in his hand. So imagine this scenario. Like, Imagine the scenario, like Saul is sitting on his, his throne or whatever in the king room, in the palace, and David's there kind of playing the lyre, which I think the lyre was kind of like a guitar or something like that. So David's kind of playing this guitar, and, and Saul gets mad, and he takes his spear and he's like, wham, and throws at him, and, and luckily, you know, he's like, I will pin David to the wall, and David alluded this twice. So apparently Saul did this twice, where he just takes his spear and he's like, wham, throws him to the wall. And... Uh, you know, th that's what happened. So S Saul was just bitter and angry about David's popularity, about his standing amongst the people. And he was, he was really upset about this. And uh, like I said, this, this whole incident apparently occurred right after David had beaten Goliath. So the whole thing took place. And uh, I want to I just take a real quick moment. I know if we, when we read that verse... It says something interesting. I don't know if, Ariana, you can go back to it, but I want to mention, um, it talks about an evil spirit from God coming over, uh, coming over Saul. So I'm not going to talk about this, but I kind of want to just, I don't want to like just pretend it doesn't exist. Like sometimes we read difficult sections in scripture and we're like, oh, let's just like, let's just skip that and pretend it doesn't exist. So uh, you, I want to like, give you like a quick, easy answer what that means. And I'll just like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm okay saying I don't really know what that means. So I know sometimes in church, like pastors can just give you a quick, bam, easy answer, or conversely, they'll just like skip over something and pretend it doesn't exist. So I don't want to pretend this doesn't exist, but also want to say like I'm comfortable saying like I don't know what that's about. And I, I do want to say like, hey, if you want to talk more about it, like 
email me, text me, like, love to talk to you more about it. But so sometimes, like, I'm okay saying, like, there's some things in Scripture I don't understand. So I just want to acknowledge that at this point. But what we're talking about today is, is bitterness and anger. And this was something that was definitely true of Saul. I mean, he became obsessed with David to the point that he was neglecting his families, uh, his responsibilities, his kingdom. He was neglecting it all because of his bitterness and anger, and he became obsessed with killing David. But as the saying goes, like Saul suffered the far worse fate as his emotional health, his relationships, his nation, again, he was the king, his nation suffered because of his bitterness. And eventually, his own life, it crumbled to pieces. So a few chapters later, as the story goes on, the Philistines, again, these are, these are Saul's and the nation of Israel's enemy. They're battling. They're out in the battlefield, and the Philistines are kind of winning the battle, taking over, and Saul's like, oh, the gig is up. I'm in trouble. And rather than risk being captured or killed by the enemy, he just decides to take his own life by the sword. The tragic, em- tragic ending to a complicated and conflicted person. I mean, it's a bit of a dramatic example, right? But hopefully you get the point. Holding on to bitterness and anger, it really does hurt us more than the other person. It really does. So, you know, so the question begs, like, what's, what's the alternative, right? What else can we do? So here uh, I find some words from the ancient uh, apostle Paul helpful. So Paul was an early leader, early influential leader in Christianity, and he wrote a lot of the Bible as we know it today, at least parts of the New Testament. And uh, what Paul did is he went around to different ancient cities, kind of in the Roman Empire, and he, he helped them start their churches and to kind of lead their churches. And he wrote these different letters called epistles to these cities. And uh, the city of the people he wrote to that I want to uh, highlight today, he wrote to a city, a group of people in a city called Ephesus. Hence, the letter is called to the Ephesians. You know, the, like we're the Denverites. We're from Denver. We're the Denverites. These people were the Ephesians because they lived in Ephesus, right? So he writes this letter to the Ephesians, you know, this kind of early group of uh, Jesus followers, this early church, and he says this. He says, put aside all bitterness, losing your temper, anger, shouting, and slander, along with every other evil thing. Be kind, compassionate, and forgiving to each other in the same way God forgave you in Christ. Two pretty simple things. Simple yet really hard to pull off, right? Putting aside anger, forgiving as God forgave. And I find this interesting. He wrote this to a community. He wrote this to a group of people uh, talking about the importance of the need to forgive. Because Paul knew how easy it is when you're in a community, when you're in a relationship with people, how easy it is to let that bitterness build up, to let that anger fester, to let that grudge stay. And the longer we kind of let that fester, that smolder, that spark, the harder it is for that group to stay in unity and cohesion to maintain relationship. I think, I think many, if not most of us, have, 
can probably think or speak to an experience of our own when we're in a relationship, in a family, in a community where we saw anger and bitterness and grudges fester and smolder and spark and how they eventually destroyed those relationships or families or communities. And Paul is trying to get ahead of this and he says, hey, I understand this can be an issue for you. So the solution is as simple as it sounds isn't isn't simple, but it, it's simple, but it's not easy, I guess we'd say. Let go of your anger. Forgive as God forgave. It's simple but hard to do. And, and as important as it is to talk about uh, forgiveness, I, I think we should also talk about what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not excusing the wrongdoing. I remember when I was in high school, I went to this K through 12 school, and for some reason, my Spanish class was right next to this elementary classroom. And one day, this, the elementary teacher brought over this little kid, and he had been banging on the wall, and his teacher brought him over to, to apologize to our uh, high school Spanish class. And you know, us being these like, stupid high schoolers, right, we're just like, oh, that's okay, no worries. And our teacher, Mrs. Reed, I want to give her a shout out, she's like, no, it's not okay, you say, we forgive you. So again, uh, offering forgiveness is not excusing the behavior that happened. I also want to say that forgiveness is not dependent on someone else's contrition. Like, if it was, we'd just be forever in the, the debt, you know, forever waiting. If, if, someone, if we're waiting for someone to, to say, I'm sorry, like, we're gonna, always going to kind of be still kind of in debt to them. We can't move on until they've offered their contrition. I mean, I, I, I can speak to, I can speak from, <laughs> I can speak from experience on that. Like, in professional settings I've been a part of, people have done unethical things to me, and even when I've taken those grievances or uh, unethical behavior to my superiors, and the superiors said, hey, this person's supposed to apologize to you, that never came. <laughs> So I kind of was faced with a decision, like, am I just going to hold on to this, this bitterness and this grudge until, like, this person apologizes to me, or am I just going to let it go? And sometimes it's like a repeated reminder for me, like, when that kind of, like, grief or beef, that's the word, it seeps up, like, I've got to tell myself, no, Lauren, you're forgiving, you're letting this go. And that gets to, like, the third principle about forgiveness, is that it's, it's like, it's practice, something we have to keep doing. It's like, it's like batting practice. You know, baseball is starting up, uh, and I'm excited because I'm a Yankees fan. I'm hoping this is their year because, you know, Yankees fans, like, we've had it tough over the last few years, right? No baseball fans this year. Okay, that didn't work. That joke did not fly. Um, <laughs> baseball is starting up, and baseball is all about batting practice. Like, those batters, they get in the batting cage, and they practice, and they practice, and they practice. And even the most successful hitters, like, they're only successful, like, three out of ten times. So the point being, like, this takes practice. You're not always going to do best at it, but as you practice, you're going to get better at it. That's forgiveness. But when we can forgive, it is a powerful thing. And I think we undervalue, we underappreciate the power that forgiveness can have in our lives. I believe it can change our lives. So I want to show you one more clip from the movie. 
And it's at near the end of the movie where Peter comes face to face with uh, the enemy called Sandman. And it turns out this is the this is the character who actually was responsible for killing Peter's uncle Ben. So let's go ahead and show that clip here. have a choice. You had a choice when you killed my uncle. My daughter was dying. I needed money. I was scared. I told your uncle all I wanted was the car. What is it? I need your car. He said to me, why don't you just put down the gun and go home? I realize now he was just trying to help me. Then I saw my partner running over with the cash, and the gun was in my hand. did a terrible thing to you. I spent a lot of nights wishing I could take him back. I'm not asking you to forgive me. I just want you to understand. I've done terrible things, too. to be this. The only thing left of me now is my daughter.
one of my favorite parts of the movie. Look, I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you're dealing with. But I, I just want to encourage you. If you're holding on to something, some bitterness, some anger, a grudge, I want to invite you to let it go. And I'm not asking you to pretend like the wrong didn't happen. I'm not asking you to act like everything is fine. Rather, I'm asking you to let go of the anger, the bitterness, and the grudge. Because the longer we hold on to it, the longer we let fester, it grows, it becomes a part of us, it changes us. And often enough, we end up hurting the ones we love in ways we never could have expected. Peter was fortunate. He was able to free himself from that bitterness and anger. And one of my other favorite scenes in the movie is when he's in the church bell tower and he starts banging on the bell and that starts to break off. Like we might say he found salvation in a church. That's why I love that scene. But in that same scene, if you remember the movie, as that kind of symbiote, that bitterness and grudge and anger has fallen off, it falls onto Peter's nemesis, this guy named Brock, who becomes Venom. And Brock's character, Venom, is ultimately destroyed because of that bitterness and the anger and the grudge. You know, in the moment, like, like I said, and we saw in the movie, in the moment, it that bitterness that feels so engaging, it feels so empowering, it feels so exhilarating. But then in the end, it leaves us lonely and destroyed. I believe when we let it go, kind of like we saw in that clip, when we let it go, we find freedom, we find peace, we find renewal. As Peter Parker said, yes, I'm going to end on a Peter Parker quote. Whatever comes our way, whatever battle we have raging inside of us, we always have a choice. He says it's the choices we make that make us who we are. Don't forget that. It's the choices we make that make us who we are. And we can always choose to do what's right. Choose life, choose health, choose forgiveness.